Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This week, we're taking a trip back in time to July 1994 to cover one of the most important moments in wrestling in the 90s and, you know, a moment that changed wrestling history, Hulk Hogan jumping to WCW. It's Bash the Beach 1994, where WCW delivered the dream match that Vince McMahon never could. Yeah, hey, remember when we covered that WrestleMania? And it was just like, boy, we really wish Hulk Hogan versus Ric Flair had happened at that WrestleMania. That's what everybody thought. And here, somehow, WCW manages to deliver the biggest dream match possibly of all time. It is kind of crazy that Vince had these guys and their only matches were on house shows. But, you know, we covered all the reasons why we think that happened that way on our WrestleMania 8 episode. So instead, we're moving forward with how Hulk Hogan ended up in WCW, Eric Bischoff's incredible gamble that leads to WCW becoming the hottest wrestling company in really the history of the world and somehow going out of business three years after that. It all starts right here. It's almost impossible to really wrap your head around how much happens within a five-year span here. Just like, first of all, I, it always like freaks me out to remember that Hogan comes in in 94 because after this, he doesn't really do a damn thing worthwhile for another two years. It's not a great run. Yeah. Like from here until he turns heel and joins the NWO, there are not a whole lot of highlights. Yeah. So it's just amazing to think that he just kind of hangs out for two years before the period that everybody remembers, but that the whole thing can still be condensed into a period. That, I mean, like, there are guys on the WWE roster right now who you forget even exist who have been on TV longer than WCW existed. It is. It burned very hot and very briefly. And this, you know, it didn't happen right away, but this was the start of them turning things around. Um, I mean, I feel like the story here really starts in the early 90s when the steroid scandal picks up. Hulk Hogan is named as a steroid user and... The heat really comes on, and about that time, as the WWF's business is slowing down, Hulkster starts deciding maybe he should make some more movies rather than wrestling so much. A decision that I think we're all very pleased about because it gave us such things as Mr. Nanny and Suburban Commando and all of those treasured film classics. Exactly. Hogan, his last full-time year was 1991. He does... Um, a couple appearances in 1992, does the Rumble, does WrestleMania, but he's gone after that. He comes back in 93 for WrestleMania 9. He wins the WWF title, and then he loses it to Yokozuna at King of the Ring, as we covered a couple weeks ago. And then he does a few more matches on house shows, and he is gone from the WWF after that. Now, do you think it was his intention? Like, we talked during the King of the Ring 93 uh, podcast about how obviously Hogan was planting a lot of seeds about going back to Japan and maybe eventually coming back to WWE later on. But do you think it was his intention to come back to wrestling or do you think he thought he was going to segue into movies and TV full time? I think he would have been more than happy to just become an actor. Obviously his movie and TV career did not take off the way say the rock or Dave Batista's did. I think my guess is he's saying, I'm going to go away for a while. I'm going to make some movies and I'm going to come back later for a big payday. Yeah. I don't know if he's thinking to himself. I don't know if he knew where it was going to be. He probably wasn't even thinking about WCW at that point because 
in not by in 1992, WCW is so bush league; they're barely on the radar. Let's see what's going on around the time in WCW around the time that he leaves WWE. Like, what's like? It's I know I'm sure it's Sting, but like, is there really anything going on, or is that just that dark period where it's just Sting versus various mid carders? Sting and Vader. Uh, Ron Simmons had been the world champion in '92 with Bill Watts in charge. So that's kind of the next part of this story is. Bill Watts gets fired from WCW in early 1993. Um, he had done an interview with, I think, Wade Keller. Bef- it was a while before it was published, before it kind of became such a story. And we'll get to how that happened in a second. But in this in this interview with Wade Keller, he just makes some awful, like, racist and homophobic comments. Just <clears throat> disgusting stuff. This is like Bill Watts not grasping the difference between running a regional wrestling promotion and running a you know multi-million dollar national entertainment company that's a subsidiary of Turner Broadcasting. There's just a different level of expectation of behavior here. Not only that, but like he the crux of it was that he genuinely didn't think that uh, people should have to serve black people if they didn't feel like they wanted to. Yes. Yeah, uh, which, Lester Maddox, who was the uh, segregationist governor of Georgia, was a restaurant owner who refused to serve black people, ran for governor after you know launching his career by refusing to comply with integration laws and became governor of Georgia. You know, that's what Bill Watts thinks. I think that's wrong and terrible. And a lot of people agreed. Yes, and unfortunately, it's still somewhat of a topic of conversation that we're having these days, yes. many, many, many years later. But the most important thing is that one person in Georgia who was definitively not a racist and really didn't appreciate those comments was Ted Turner himself. Yes, and before that, Hank Aaron, who was a vice president for Turner Broadcasting, one of the great baseball players of all time, beloved former Atlanta Brave. Uh, I believe the story is Mark Madden faxed a copy of this interview uh to um hank aaron and at that point he said okay you know this guy's gone or i'm gone put his foot down and yeah ted turner was not going to side with bill watts who was not doing a good job running wcw anyway it might have been a different conversation if wcw had been doing well but this was a good excuse to throw the guy out the back door and let's remember that Bill Watts is at the end of a line of a whole bunch of really yeah. horribly mismanaging shitheads who try to run WCW and just bury it into the ground. At this point, WCW is such a gigantic headache to deal with that anytime anybody gives them a reason, they're just going to get rid of them. Yeah, I you absolutely could have seen WCW getting shut down here. Absolutely. I, I don't think they, they were didn't. far from it. Yeah, I, I'm amazed that they just kept giving it chance after chance. Like. If you ever wonder if Ted Turner genuinely was loyal to wrestling on his network, which is what he built the TBS with, like there's no better proof than this. Anyone else would have shut this down ages ago. It's not making money. It's horribly embarrassing. It's not making. It's not getting you into like ad rooms. It's not something that you're going to like the TV expos. I mean, like, hey, I own this. This is so fantastic. He's literally just loyal to the concept of wrestling. 
yeah. which I mean, they must be thankful for because this business is a goddamn disaster at this point. No, there was no like real business reason to keep this around. He did it really, I think, just out of maybe he had some vision that it could be better than what it had been. But yeah, I think just kind of a romantic attachment to wrestling since that's what he had built Turner Broadcasting on. So after kind of a brief interlude where Kip Fry's in charge of the company, they hire Eric Bischoff as the executive producer, which is not the all-powerful role he would later take on. This is more just specifically he's in charge of their TV production. He's not in charge of talent or creative at this point. Narrowly, his job is how does our TV show look? How is it formatted? Those types of decisions. Now, you can easily see how that would eventually bleed into, okay, I'll also be in charge of what happens when the TV is on, because it, it does kind of seem like that's naturally going to bleed into that, and that's eventually how it would work out for him. But And so immediately, his goal is to make everything look more professional, less Southern, less regional, more national, more appealing to people. Yeah. And we should talk about what Bill Watts had done. Like, Bill Watts had gone all the way into, yeah. like, gritty southern 1970s mid-south wrestling um took the mats off the floor turned the lights way down band top rope moves just like seemingly everything he could do to make this product look less modern he was doing and like this is one of the reasons why i've always been a steadfast wwf fan is like, if you go back and watch during this time, it looks worse than it did in the 80s. When they had more money and they were at least trying with the glitz and glam, they just didn't have the production style yet because it was the 80s. Here, it's just it looks like there's not a dollar put into this product. Everyone's wearing the same ring gear. Everyone looks the same. Everything's drab. The fans don't seem excited. They're in the dark. It's horrible. It's really bad. This is... This might... I mean... You know, 2000 WCW is somehow even worse. But yeah, this stuff in the early 90s, like just about everything after Ric Flair leaves until Bischoff takes over is pretty dire. There's glimmers of hope. There's still good wrestling because they have tremendous talent, but the company as a whole just has no direction. It's a mess. Right. And it doesn't really seem like there's a lot of hope for it to get better. I mean, your two big stars are Sting and Ric Flair, but they've been around for forever. They're not really drawing any money anymore. It's just, I, if I was looking at that business from outside, I'd be like, man, I don't see how it gets any better. There's a, There are some young stars with potential, but mostly not. Mostly it's guys like Terry Funk is a major part of the show. He's already like 50 at this point. Yeah, but he's not going anywhere. That's true. Um, so Bischoff, th Bischoff is told you have to cut costs. The thing is, Bill Watts has already cut this company the, to the bone. He's cut everybody's pay. He's cut all of their production costs. It's hard to see how Bischoff is going to cut any costs, but he has... You know, he makes the notorious decision to move their TV tapings to Disney World. This is regarded as like an all-time debacle in wrestling history. I think that popular narrative is wrong. I think this was objectively a good business move. They I genuinely don't get why that narrative exists. Now, there was some stuff that happened where, I mean, it's just people like to make fun of WCW is a lot of it. But, you know, stuff like, oh, the crowd didn't care about the show. Yeah, but they cheered. They cheered who they were told to. The shows looked great. You know, it was a well-lit 
full production studio. Instead of losing money, Disney was paying them to do this. They got to be associated with a successful brand in Disney World, and Disney World would promote them. I, to me, this was a no-brainer. This was, a, I mean, the downsides, they taped a ton of TV all in advance. Like, they'd do months and months at once, which, you know, that led to things getting spoiled in the newsletters. But nobody's reading new, like the, the newsletters readership at this point is so tiny compared to say modern wrestling internet um, readership that I don't think it had a significant effect. And see, here's the thing. There's a huge difference between the way that Smarks looked at WCW and maybe the way that a casual fan might look at it. Because if you were watching during this earlier time when everything is so dark and dingy and looks crappy and looks poor and looks like it doesn't have any production value to it. And then you look at it after they move into the Disney studio it looks a hundred times better, more colorful, more bright. There's more people. Like everything just looks more professional. It doesn't mean that it's necessarily the greatest place in the world, but it just gives you a foundation to build off of that doesn't actively turn off people who turn on your show. This was always the argument with the impact zone. When M TNA was doing fantastic, nobody had a problem with the impact zone. But when TNA started to get crappy, Everybody was like, oh, well, obviously they have to go to do like live touring shows and do house shows and stuff like that. As long as you have Ironically, a big... when Bischoff came to TNA, they started touring more. And I think the reason that they eventually leave Disney is because they never really wanted to stay. It was just a place to stabilize their business and not actively turn off people while they made a couple dollars to turn a profit. Yeah. A couple like years later, they get, they get Nitro, and that does kind of change the game. They continued to tape their syndicated TV at Disney for a long time, but those syndicated shows really stopped mattering once they had Nitro. Right, and that was always the TNA business model, too, is eventually we'll stop running the Impact Zone, except they never quite got yeah, there. Never grew out of it. I yeah. mean, the other bonus here was, like, the Turner executives all loved being able to take their families to Disney World yes. and, like, say they were doing business by going to see WCW. So getting in good with the bosses is always a good thing. Absolutely. I'm, it's, it's a smart solution and an incredibly savvy one. And part of the reason why it was so reviled at the time, it was just so out of left field. It was just one of those things that you didn't do in wrestling. Like It's the genius of Eric Bischoff. He doesn't approach this as a wrestling company. Absolutely. He and of course, it's a TV production, which of course you know, he was ahead of the curb on that. He would be reviled by smart fans and old school type fans and stuff like that because this is just isn't the way you did business before that. But if you look, it's the way they've done business ever since, looking at it as a television pro pro production agency rather than a wrestling product. And that's, I mean, I would say that Vince McMahon may have actually learned some stuff from Bischoff here. Yeah, I mean, Vince McMahon perfected this model and WWE has really become a TV company now. Absolutely. Um, so fast forward to the spring of 1994, WCW has, they're not setting the world on fire, but they've at least stopped the bleeding, you know, no more scandals, no more debacles and embarrassments. Their business is not killing it, but they're not losing nearly as much money as they had been. Um, Hulk Hogan is shooting his television series, Thunder in Paradise down in Florida. Okay. What are your memories of Thunder in Paradise? I have seen every episode of Thunder in Paradise. <laughs> Explain it, to me the premise of Thunder in Paradise. I'm just going to read to you straight off the wiki for Thunder in Paradise, okay? Here we go. 
Thunder in Paradise follows the adventures of two ex-Navy SEALs, Randolph J. Hurricane Spencer and Martin Brew Brubaker, who work as mercenaries out of their tropical resort headquarters along Florida's Gulf Coast. Using their futuristic high-tech boat nicknamed Thunder, they travel around the world fighting various criminals and villains. However, they are forced to balance their dangerous undercover work with the responsibilities of raising Spencer's young daughter, Jessica, who lives with them. You know, that doesn't sound like that bad a premise for a TV show, to be honest. It's basically the premise of Knight Rider, but... And here was the best thing about Thunder in Paradise, is that Knight Rider worked because you can have a car anywhere. They had to keep coming up with water-based yeah. enemies for him to fight. That is tough. It's not like... And I think in one episode they put the boat like they tow it behind a car, so like the boat's talking <laughs> to it. And I'm like, this is just Knight Rider. What the fuck are we doing here? Um, this show lasted one season, which to me, in my head, I'm always thinking like, oh, Hogan was gone for a while in like 1995. He must have been filming Thunder in Paradise now. Yeah. <laughs> no, this show lasted one season. Also, let the record show, one of the running themes of our show is things I've spent money on in the oh, pursuit boy. of wrestling. I owned the Thunder in Paradise CDI interactive video game. Oh, man. That's right. I, uh... <sighs> yeah. I've, I've been bad. Yeah. So the story I've heard is, like, Flair was the connect here. Flair went to visit him while they were doing TV in Disney, they talked business. Hogan, you know, was willing to listen. Hogan's always willing to listen to a business proposal. He said, you know, I'll call Bischoff. Got his number from Flair. Um, Hogan to WCW is reported in the Observer in February. It's still a while before he officially signs on the dotted line, but it seems like the writing was on the wall uh, that early. It's funny, too, because that seems like the kind of thing that they would have had to leak to, to like, the dirt sheets, because I don't know... Who exactly would be privy to that information, really? Hogan may have leaked it for leverage with Vince to see if Vince would make him an offer. See, that's what I would say. And I, I would guess that during this whole process, negotiating process with Bischoff, Hogan probably still isn't at any point really all that convinced that he's going to WCW. And I think I've heard him say before that like he really was just seeing what they were going to talk about. He was very happy with what he was doing. And they just came at him with such a ridiculous offer that he just couldn't say no. Yeah, I can see Hogan. It's February. WrestleMania is coming up. I can see Hogan thinking, hey, maybe I can you know, force Vince into another big payday. But this time, you know, Vince doesn't make the offer, and WCW you know, backs up the Brinks truck. Yep. Um, so, yeah, I mean, as early as like the Super Brawl pay-per-view, they're talking about Hogan on the commentary during the show. Flair is starting to talk about Hogan in interviews on WCW TV. Hogan is doing interviews where he's saying he wants to get back in the ring and wrestle Ric Flair. So a long tease here before he actually signs his contract. Man, and it's understandable. Hulk Hogan is... It's not even close. He's the biggest star wrestling has ever seen. And at this point in the business, there's not really another name anywhere remotely near this big, especially not as a free agent. Like the idea of getting a Hulk Hogan if you're WCW is unthinkable. Like it's like it's, it would be like TNA getting John Cena and it being like, what the fuck? Are you serious? All right, cool. 
Yeah, WCW at this point, they're not profitable yet, but they're losing a lot less money than they had been. There's signs of growth. That gives Bischoff the credibility to go to Turner, ask them for the money to sign Hogan. Ted Turner himself had to sign off on this one. And, you know, it's a little bit of a gamble. They have to throw a lot of money at him. But for Turner, hey, he's going to have Hulk Hogan on his TV. That sounds like like a cool thing. You know, a couple million bucks to Ted Turner is not that much money. And a big part of this deal, and it's not officially a part of the deal, but it's one of the more appealing things to Turner specifically, is just being able to say that you have Hulk Hogan. This will be the first of many times that a promoter yeah. or a business person will be like, hey, hey, Hulk Hogan will represent our product now. How great is that? Part of what I love is how much of this repeats itself later with TNA. Also, there's one other note from The Observer, which is that allegedly Hogan was considering running his own tour in Europe. <laughs> Yes, which is something, I mean, it was Australia, but something he would later do in the late 2000s. It's just so fantastic. Like, it's almost hard for me not to go back to the TNA comparison over and over and over again. It's like when we did the John Cena show, and I was working my, so my hardest not to keep saying the name Roman Reigns again and again and again, because the parallels are just so obvious. Like, this exact same thing happened almost in the same way. Like in, in TNA, Hulk Hogan came in and then for weeks beforehand, all they would talk about is Hulk Hogan to the detriment of the rest of the product. It, it, it's like they recreated the exact circumstances that brought him in, yeah. except this time it just didn't work. Difference being Hogan couldn't really wrestle when right. TNA got him. He wasn't, I mean, he's you know older here, but he's still capable of having you know a light in-ring schedule and being just fine. And in fact, he has one of his best matches on this show absolutely um so i'm sure hogan could have made more money on a per date basis in japan but he's just he'd have to move over there if he was going to consistently work japan the travel schedule is just too brutal he's not going to do that at that point in his life absolutely though it, it is just really fun to listen to him sit down and talk about japan because he has so much respect for japanese wrestling it's the kind of thing that you wouldn't necessarily expect from a guy like Hulk Hogan, but like he genuinely loved wrestling over there. Japan's really where he became a star first. Right. He was he a star in Japan before America. Japan, right? Yeah. God, I wish I could get my hands on some of those matches. <laughs> so, I mean, WCW offers him a very light schedule and just the deal of the century. So here's the breakdown I found. This initial deal is very short term. It's only through the end of 1994. Um, so he gets paid $1.8 million guaranteed to work six matches, three Clash of the Champions, three pay-per-views. So that's a great deal in and of itself, but yeah. wait, there's more. He also gets 25% of gross pay-per-view buys for any buys above what WCW was averaging at the time, which is... Like not even a hundred thousand buys. So when they sell more than a hundred thousand buys, if they do two hundred thousand buys, he gets twenty-five percent of the gross on that extra hundred thousand buys. Now I've always wondered about this because later when WCW is completely destroying their previous buy rates, 
Is he still getting that based on the hundred thousand? How it worked later on, yeah. When they're like more, when their pay per views start drawing on average, you know, two hundred and fifty thousand buys instead. I don't know this. Yeah, I don't know what his subsequent deal. Maybe. I'm sure he was making even more money later on. Is the thing like as the company's business grew, his money grew on top of it. You see, Hogan's gamble paid off so hardcore for him, even if it was like. Well, yeah, I get 25% of the gross over the yearly average of pay-per-view. So it like escalates like that. Even still, anything that he pops. And Hogan on pay-per-view would go on popping big ratings all the way through 1998. He was making a ridiculous amount of money. Yeah, there's more on top of this, too. He agrees to work a few house shows. He gets 25% of the gate for those house shows and 65% of his merchandise sales. 65%! Which and apparently the arenas typically get like a twenty five percent cut of the merchandise. So WCW is essentially losing money on Hogan shirts. And let's be clear: at that time, WCW merchandise was not something that anybody wanted. So if you were going to go to WCW show and buy a shirt, it was Hogan's shirt, and he got all of it really. <sighs> He's also given creative control over his character, his matches, and basically booking control over the company like it becomes clear in the years to come that he's heavily involved in creative up and down the card and i'm actually going to say something controversial now because we've we've never really talked about the whole creative control aspect of hulk hogan's deal when he was in wcw and obviously that's one of the more controversial things of all time i'm going to tell you right now he could have made that way worse he could have made that so much. He could have literally been like Brutus Beefcake wins the United States title, holds it for three years. He could have done so much more damage than he actually did because they handed him power over every booking decision. Because if you're in the main event and you have the title, every storyline weaves its way to you. All of them. Yeah. And Bischoff's defense of this would be, you know, the top guys always have creative control. Like the reality of wrestling is you can't make them do what you want. Guys refuse to do stuff all the time. I mean, just a couple weeks ago, we covered Steve Austin refusing to lose to Brock Lesnar. This is, it's not, I mean, this was the first and really only time it was ever put in writing, but plenty of other guys have had creative control based on the position they were in. I mean, that's definitely true, and to some extent, I kind of understand what he's saying. But on the other hand, most of those guys don't have it actively written into their contract. Like, you can't, if you forced a legal confrontation with Steve Austin about, hey, you have to do this job, it says it in the contract. That's true. You, you can either walk out or do it. Yeah. Austin breached his contract by not showing up to work, whereas Hogan would have been totally within his rights to refuse to show up to do something he didn't want to do. Say, There's literally no leverage. Like Vince McMahon, ultimately, at the end of the day, even though he has top guys who he's obviously going to kowtow to in some ways, has the power. And in this case, Eric Bischoff never had the power over Hulk Hogan. Hulk Hogan may have given him power and like done what he said out of respect, but he never had to, ever. So this ends up being a huge success, as we've, as we've mentioned. I think rightfully there was some skepticism at the time. Hogan really had not been drawing for the WWF in 92 and 93. At this point, he's 41 years old. He hasn't worked a full-time schedule in a couple years. His name's been tainted by the steroid scandal. His physique is nowhere near what it used to be. And they're paying him three times what they're paying Ric Flair to wrestle six matches. 
it does sort of feel like if this bombs, this could be the last straw for WCW. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, this was an all-in gamble. It really was. Uh, I, I can't even really compare it to anything else in the wrestling business. And it, I'm, it's one of those things that it took somebody like Eric Bischoff, who maybe didn't have a clear understanding of what he could and couldn't or should and shouldn't do in the business, to be like, fuck it, let's risk everything. What do I have to lose? I'm nobody from nowhere. Who cares? He'll, yeah, he'll just go back to selling meat in Minneapolis if it doesn't work out. I say It's not like Bill Watts, who had like a, a reputation built over 30 years to maintain. He wouldn't have taken this risk. Nobody in the wrestling business would have taken this risk. Not even Vince, who took some damn risks. Um, so to cover kind of where the company had been in the time leading up to this, Ric Flair has been booking for a while. Um, as Hogan comes in, Flair uh, resigns or is re is removed as the head of the booking committee and replaced by Kevin Sullivan, who is a friend of Hogan's from way back in the old Florida days. I'm sure that's not a coincidence. I think Hogan probably pretty much got to name the booker. <clears throat> I'm sure it's probably not also. And I... I, I... It must be said that Ric Flair deserves a whole lot of credit for this entire process. This is Ric Flair's company. It has been ever since its formation as WCW and 10 years before that when he was the king of NWA. It is built in his image. He is its star. He is the fan favorite. He is the icon of this business. He does so much personal work in convincing Hogan that it's a good idea to come in. He's on planes going to Hogan's house to talk to him. He's around him all the time. He's calling him. He's what one of the major things that gives Hogan confidence that the people in WCW won't shit on him for having worked for the competition for so long. And not only that, but Ric Flair basically openly says, you can have my spot as the top guy. That's what this is. You will be the top guy. I will also be a top guy. And we'll just go from there. It's an incredible amount of humility, probably because Flair saw the writing on the wall and like, we need this. It is selfless. Flair ends up making a lot of money from this. But yeah, to have the top guy just kind of willingly give up his top spot is not something that happens very often in the wrestling business. Hey, off the top of my head, I can't think of it very often. No, not really. Uh, Flair is the WCW champion. Uh he defeated Vader at Starcade 1993 in an amazing match that we'll have to review sometime. One of the best ever, yeah. Uh, beat Vader in a steel cage rematch at Super Brawl. Uh, went to a controversial draw against Ricky Steamboat at Spring Stampede. And at Slamboree, he retained the world title against Barry Windham. And he's actually on an amazing run. Like, this is his kind of second win, last gasp, run this is, to retirement. This is kind of the last great run for Ric Flair. I mean, he still wrestles for another 15 years after this, but it's never the same. This right. is the last time you get something resembling vintage Flair. Yeah, this is the last world champion, and it feels like that. It's kind of promoted that way, like the last ride of Ric Flair. Here he is. He actually beat Vader. What an incredible upset. How long can he keep it going? And then all of a sudden, here comes Hogan. Bring back his old rivals for him to fight against one yes. last time. And that's really cool. And, and it starts to slightly increase business as he goes along and starts doing this because there's interest in Flair like this. And then on comes Hogan. Yeah. Hogan uh, films his first WCW promo on a Disney taping on May 17th. That doesn't air for quite a while afterwards. Um, 
The early ads for Bash at the Beach are teasing that Hogan and Flair are going to team up. That I'm sure that was the original idea. I think it's an interesting and maybe a decent idea. Do you, can you maybe get two big buy rates if you do Hogan's first match and then maybe at Halloween Havoc or Starcade you do Hogan versus Flair? It really felt like a waste for me the way that they did this because Babyface Flair had a lot of momentum. I mean, yes. based on this sort of last ride thing, he's an, a very hot babyface. And they basically just immediately turn him heel to work with Hogan here. It seems like a waste. It really does. And as soon as Hogan beats him, there's really nothing for Flair to do after that. Get beat so, by Hogan some more is what it turned out there was left. Yeah, exactly. If you do the partners thing and then you go to the betrayal, there, there's a way, there's somewhere to go. And it seemed like this was the WCW way of booking, was create the dream match, blow it off. All right, we got nothing. Cool, thanks for coming. Uh, Hogan makes his WCW debut on the June 11th episode of Saturday Night with a live parade at Disney World. The show was pre-taped. They would cut to Disney World throughout the show to show this Hogan parade a very cool debut. Oh, my God, yeah. And it looks super impressive. Like, Hulk is in the middle of... Just tons and tons of confetti and streamers and people yelling because literally he's going down like the main avenue at Disney World. Yeah. Like even if you don't know what's going this is on, legit. Yeah, it's Hulk Hogan riding on a parade. Like yeah. you know who, Hulk like Hogan the quarterback is. who won the Super Bowl. Yeah. So like even if you were there and you were like, well, I don't know what this is about, but fuck it, that's Hulk Hogan. Yay! Yeah, they, they did a staged press conference where you know planted reporters would ask him questions. You know, he said he wanted to wrestle Ric Flair or Sting, whoever won the unification match at the Clash of the Champions. He said, you know, the WCW title was the real world title in wrestling, listed off a bunch of people who have held it, some of whom, like Gorgeous George, some of whom had not actually held it. But, you know, <laughs> the effort was there. I wonder, I mean, it's obvious that like Hogan's passion was never the NWA when he was younger. I mean, he was all in on the Florida territory specifically. Um, if you've heard him on the uh, the Dusty Rhodes episode of 83 Weeks, like his his passionate way of talking about the Florida territory is actually super endearing, to be yeah. perfectly honest. Uh, but yeah, it's it's really cool. And you know how I feel about press conferences in wrestling. I love them. I love them as a way of communicating like this is a serious sport. This, these are serious people. Let, let's have people ask questions. It makes it feel like more of a like an everyday occurrence. It's not just like a mystical TV show living in its own universe. It's connected to us. I like that. Yeah. Um, so this episode of Clash of the Champions does a 1.8 rating, which is nothing out of the ordinary, like pretty much what they've been doing. Do you think they were worried at that point? I, I would have been a little bit. Yeah, you bring in Hulk Hogan and your rating doesn't really move at all. That's got to be concerning. For sure. Uh, June 23rd, Clash of the Champions takes place in Charleston, South Carolina. Uh, Hogan does a live interview in front of the crowd where he challenges the winner of the Sting Flair unification match. He's heavily booed by the live crowd, whereas Flair is cheered overwhelmingly. But Flair is still a baby face at this point, And they are very much in flair country here. What do you think it would have done if they had gone Hogan sting? I mean, obviously that's super baby face, baby face, but they don't even really seem to interact very much early on. No, the trying to think of what they do. Not much. They are 
There's there's a war games match that they're on the same team for. Yeah, they really keep them apart. It doesn't even I don't even know if they really team up. They may do a tag match at some point, but yeah, they just kind of exist in their own separate universes for a yeah. long time. Because honestly, if I was going to book Hogan's first match, it would be something like Hogan and Sting versus Flair and somebody, you know? Like yeah, they're just work. so like Sting is the Hogan of WCW or as close as like, it just seems like an, an easy fit in the main of the main event of that show. Flair beats Sting to unify the WCW world heavyweight championship with the WCW international heavyweight championship. I'm not going to explain what the international heavyweight championship <laughs> is. That's a subject for a different episode. Yes, it is. This occurs after sensational, sensuous Sherry Martel turned on Sting and aligned herself with Flair because Sting is a giant dumbass and actually <laughs> thought Sherry was going to be on his side. She is uh, way too much woman for Sting. Oh, God damn it, Sting. Sting? The dumbest man in wrestling. Dumber we, than John Cena. I mean, look, we, we've had a lot of fun yelling about how John Cena is the stupidest man in wrestling and he gets fooled by everyone. But if you never saw Sting in the 90s, you don't understand what it means to be the stupidest man in wrestling. This guy would have random people off the street like say, like, hi, Sting, can I be your friend? He'd be like, yeah, we're best friends forever. And they betray him the next day. Every week this happened yeah. to Sting. Um, this clash did a 3.0 rating, fourth lowest Clash of the Champions rating to date. Another red flag. Especially since Sting versus Flair is basically the biggest non-Hogan match they could put on. Yeah, I and mean, like, that's a, that's always been a bankable rivalry for them, and they're unifying their two world titles, and they've got Hogan on the show, and they can't draw. And nobody, and it's on free TV, and nobody gives a shit. Yeah, worrisome. Yeah. Uh, Hogan gets them a ton of mainstream publicity. They're booking him on, like, Larry King, CNN talk shows. This is the kind of, like, none of these shows have ever showed any interest in wrestling before. Right. And, I mean, part of it is just that Hulk Hogan is a transcendent figure. He was then. He is now. He's just somebody, he's the rare household name. There are probably only, what, maybe three household names in the history of wrestling. Maybe, like, Hogan, Rock, and Andre. Like, Roughly. something like that. Yeah. So, like, he... Boston was pretty mainstream in the late 90s, but, you know, didn't really, didn't have that long of a run. Exactly. It would be very hard for anybody else to really go on these shows and have anything to say or that anyone would really want to talk to them. Whereas Hulk Hogan, he's a national figure. He he was everybody's childhood hero. It means something to have Hulk Hogan. Like, we said the same thing when we talked about him coming into TNA. His name and his face mean more than a lot of other people's entire body of work. It's just, it matters that you have him talking about your product. In an amazing WCW fuck up, they spoiled the result of the Sting Flair <laughs> match by airing a control center segment a week early that talked about Flair winning the title from Sting and unifying the belts. Oh, Come on, guys. What are we doing here? Oh, this is such a recurring WCW oh, thing. God. It feels like they never figured this out until they just like stopped taping things in advance. When Nitro was live, they could no longer spoil things. And they always complain about how like they didn't have their own camera people and stuff they had to just recycle them from like T tbs sports or whatever the case may be but come on man this is in your truck this is all on yeah, you guys this is basic stuff you've got to get right exactly 
they only announced that Hogan and Flair were going to wrestle on this pay-per-view two weeks out. That seems like an insanely short build for the dream match of the decade. Absolutely. And this is another example that goes to show that Starcade doesn't mean anything. Because I don't know if they could have kept this going until Starcade or whatever the case may be. But every major thing that's ever happened in WCW happened at Bash at the Beach. It's so random. It's, yeah, Bash at the Beach and Halloween Havoc were the actual A shows. Like, yeah. Starcade, other, really, other than Sting Hogan, didn't matter a whole lot after about 1988. God, like, we've. We've talked before about just doing all the Starcades, and maybe eventually we will. But yeah. it's they ruin they ruin Starcade. It's not like, even worth it. They kill like, the brand. Literally half of the Starcades are less interesting than the pay per view that comes before. Doesn't even make sense. Uh, the Go Home Show was a live episode of Saturday Night that took place on a Monday. Try to follow that. In that show, fans were allowed to vote on who would be in the matches. For the main event, the fans voted on Sting to face Flair. Um, Sting was attacked by Sherry and Flair. Hogan and Mr. T made the save for our final tease before the pay-per-view. Yes, they're going back to the Mr. T well nearly 10 years after WrestleMania won. And let, let's, <laughs> let's talk about that segment for just a second. Because... You would be forgiven if you thought after watching that segment that the money match was between Hulk Hogan and Sherry Martell. Ooh, Sherry comes in dressed as a man uh, yes. in like a tuxedo and a mustache for some reason. It actually did fool me. I had no idea who this was. And then she takes the wig off and like Hulk Hogan gives does like some of his best acting as he's just like, well, but I'm holding the hair. What's happening? Hulk Hogan's bewildered face really is something. <laughs> and she strips it off, and literally, Sherry goes toe-to-toe with Hogan. Dude. Like, stands up in she his face. Ass. And, like, she... Hogan. And, like, for the duration of this feud and for much of this match that we're about to talk about, it's Sherry versus Hogan. Flair's just there. I mean, we've talked so many times about the magic of Sherry Martel. This is some of her best work. She is every bit. She, God knows if we were in a different era and intergender wrestling was more acceptable, you could have gotten a pay-per-view match out of Hogan versus Sherry so goddamn easily. One last thing. Are we sure it's a good idea to put Hogan over Flair if he's only in for six months? Um... I mean, do you really have a choice? Since you made this match right here, I don't think you do. Let's see, I wouldn't... Uh, look, obviously, hindsight's twenty twenty. obviously. But, I mean, if, if I'm talking about booking this match, like, I don't, I don't start with this. Like, it's very... Not only are you starting with the singles match, so Rusty Hogan, who hasn't wrestled in forever, is going to wrestle a singles match against Flair, who could blow him up easily if he felt like it, on his first match back... Hogan could look could go over like a fart in church if he's not ready for this match. Like you can, you start with the biggest one. Like this is why usually when they debut people like this, you start with a tag match. When they brought the rock back after six years off, they started with the tag match. You don't just go right in. Um, yeah, it, it's risky. They've pushed all their chips to the center of the table on this one hand. 
And I wonder if maybe they were thinking, like, there's a chance this doesn't work after this. There's a chance Hogan just says, fuck this place and leaves. There's a chance that Hogan and Flair can't work together. So they're just like, let's just make this money while we can before it's too late. And they do. And they do. This is a smashing success, believe it or not. After all those issues we covered with the buildup, they pull this off. Um, It's Sunday, July 17th, 1994. Uh, we're at the Orlando Arena in Orlando, Florida. There's about 14,000 people in attendance, uh, like 9,000 paid for a $140,000 gate. So heavy paper, but looked great on the pay-per-view, sold out to the rafters. Man, and it looks amazing. Like I've seen they did a great job shooting this. It, they just did so many of those big wide pan shots of the arena, and it looked so <clears throat> huge. And it just feels like night and day. Like if you go and watch like other pay-per-views from this same year before Hogan, it's still it's not as dark and dingy as it had been prior, but it just it still feels low grade. It doesn't feel it doesn't pop off the screen. Suddenly Hogan is here and everything just seems more vibrant. The crowd seems more involved. There's so many more people. It just makes it feel more big time overnight. Absolutely. Um, so this show does a 1.02 buy rate for about 225,000 buys. Ooh. To put that in context, Slamboree, the previous pay-per-view in May, did about 100,000. Beach Blast 93 did about 100,000 buys. The most any WCW pay-per-view had done for the last couple of years were about 100,000 buys, and some only did like 50,000. Uh, Hogan doubled their pay-per-view business. Nothing else changed here. This is all Hogan. And uh, just for some more context, the amount of buys that TNA's first pay-per-view after Hogan came in there was around 15,000. Yeah. (laughs) Not the same effect. So WSW's gross here would be about 2.6 million after they paid the pay-per-view providers. Hogan gets 600 grand on his pay-per-view bonus plus the gate, then 300 for working the show, plus merchandise. So Hogan, when it's all said and done, they cut Hogan a million-dollar check for this night. Isn't that incredible? Especially in 1994, to make a million dollars for one night's work. Wrestling is not hot here. I mean, I think Steve Austin and The Rock probably pulled in about a million bucks for WrestleMania 17, and that did more like a million buys. Right. And I mean, the legend has it that back in the uh, the old WWE days <laughs> in the '80s, he was yeah. making about a million dollars a night. That I don't King know Kong, how- that King Kong Bundy story where like Vince cut him a five hundred thousand dollar check for WrestleMania, and Hogan came into his office and was like, "That's nice. Where's the other half, brother?" <laughs> and Vince cut him another five hundred thousand dollar check. I don't really- think that actually happened. I wish that that happened. Because that is how the swaggest thing I've ever heard. That's nice. Where's the other half, brother? Um, on commentary for this show, we've got Tony Schiavone doing play-by-play and then rotating color guys with Jesse Ventura and Bobby Heenan. Jesse Ventura not long for WCW with Hogan coming in. I know I've said this about Jesse Ventura before. On this show, I have never seen a human being give less of a shit about where he is and what he's doing than Jesse. (laughs) It seems so clear he has not watched 
anything that he no. was not actually there calling. Uh, he not even remotely invested in anything that's happening. These are the points where like they would have production meetings and they wouldn't be able to find him and they just go find him in a closet yes. taking a nap. That is what ultimately got him fired was they were about to start a TV taping and they couldn't find him. And like eventually they found him. Yeah. just like napping in a closet somewhere. <laughs> and that was just enough. He's gone. And I mean, at the same time, while that is still true, he's still entertaining. Yeah, no, because he's, he's just that charismatic, and he's not a patch Hogan, movie, he was him. the biggest. Star. Like, he might well have been a bigger star than Ric Flair. Yeah, is it? It's not that crazy to say him having been, you know, the commentator on Saturday Night's main event when they were doing those massive ratings back in the eighties. Absolutely, and like he had an astronomical contract at the time too. I believe he had to go through Turner to get his contract signed, also. We just kind of forget that because of the monumental contract Hogan gets, which I'm sure drives the Jesse crazy every day of his life. In the dark match, Brian Armstrong and Brad Armstrong defeated Steve Kern and Bobby Eaton. Uh, Brian Armstrong would be the road dog, right? Yes. In, in this period, if someone held a gun to your head and said, tell me which one's Brian and which one's Brad, do you think you could have done it? Nope. Nope. <laughs> And Brian will go on to become one of the most powerful people in wrestling. And Brad Armstrong will go on to become Buzzkill. Yep. Opening package is focused on the Hogan Flair dream match. Uh, we've got a cool set, as they'd always have for Bash at the Beach. Sand, you know, the ramp is a pier. They've got surfboards, lifeguard chair, all that stuff. Love these WCW pay-per-views. I've harped on it many times but i just these sets are so cool the themes the names love it all and it just it really pops off the screen they put so much work into the sets the entrance way has all of those like sparkly tassels when people are coming in that in any other era would look horribly cheap but here it's such a step up from like a curtain <laughs> um we go to ringside where shivani heenan and okerland uh welcome us to the show uh, they're on house mics, which I loved here, that the crowd could actually hear them talking. I don't understand why this isn't standard in wrestling, that you know the introduction is played over the PA, and the, the crowd can pop for what the announcers are saying, and I, the announcers can fire up the crowd. This is how I would start every single wrestling show. I've never understood why they don't do that more. Like I literally just went to a SmackDown taping, like the live SmackDown taping here in Toledo, and one of the big things that bothers me about going to WWE shows is that there's no communication between like the announcers and the audience. Like it's all through like videos and craft on commercials. And like, there's no, you're just there to watch matches basically. Like there's a couple of promos maybe, but there's just no communication there. You don't hear what's going on. You don't hear what the TV audience is getting to hear. It just, it feels very cut off from what's going on. Yeah, uh, this is one of the only times I can ever remember them doing this, though. Um, and it's strange because WCW would usually start their shows with kind of a long period, several minutes of the announcers talking about what was going on, which I like. I just I think that's kind of a flat way to start the show for the live audience if they can't hear any of that. Yes, absolutely. Uh, then Darren Norwood performs the Star Spangled Banner, Great American Flag shirt on Darren Norwood here. Hey, uh, hey, Steve, what's your favorite Darren Norwood song? The, this this was the best I've ever seen. <laughs> I don't know who Darren Norwood is. Who the fuck is Darren Norwood? No, I mean, not, not a huge 90s country music fan, so got nothing there. Nope. 
the announcers recap the situation with Sting. Uh, he was injured in that attack on Saturday night by Ric Flair and Sherry. Um, and then we go to our first match, which is for the WCW television title. Lord Steven Regal defends against Johnny B. Bad. Uh, Johnny B. Bad was around in WCW for longer than I thought. Oh, yes. Much longer. Yeah. Um, Regal is accompanied by his manager, Sir William, who is, of course, Bill Dundee. What a weird late career turn for Bill Dundee here. I kept forgetting that he had a manager here, too, because it seems really super unnecessary, doesn't it? And later on, he has Bobby Eaton as Earl Robert Eaton. And I guess maybe it's one of those things where, like, well, we got to give him to him because he doesn't have great promo skills, but they're letting him cut all of his own promos. So, like, I just, I just didn't. And his whole gimmick is that he's a super tough dude. So I'm not really sure what the manager's about. We're still just kind of in the era where heel, where heels have managers. Right. We haven't really outgrown that '80s trope yet. And let's kind of talk about the way that they're positioning Steven Regal here because he gets he's getting pushed very well at this point. Like they really seem like they feel like they have something in him. And I think they'll feel that way off and on throughout his entire run in WCW. It just doesn't seem like they ever figure out what to do with him. Well, and I think his sobriety held him back. That's true. Um, I mean, he's an amazing talent. Uh, he's he never quite really fulfilled his potential. I think he was a better fit for WCW's style because he WCW it was more okay to just work your own style in WCW, whereas in the WWF he always just seemed incredibly out of place because he right. didn't wrestle like any of the other guys. Exactly, and but his gimmick here is basically like a tough, super badass, and like we'll talk about what happens after this match when we get there. But like he looks awesome. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, lots of really cool ha- counters here. They're both working the arm and, you know, finding ways to roll through the holds, just some unique stuff. Um, I always enjoy these Regal matches. It's just such a change from how everybody else works. Nobody Absolutely. else has this style in America. And he really, here's the thing, too, is that the British style can be very, very, very inaccessible if that's not something that you don't, that you're used to and like. It's very difficult to make it accessible to people who are used to watching different kinds of wrestling. It's the people who are able to express it in a way that's appealing to other people that really get that gimmick across to other people. It was the same when Japanese wrestling, like the great Muda was great at doing that style, but communicating it in such a way that people could get into it. Whereas Masahiro Chono was not, you know what I mean? (laughs) Uh, Bad fires up, knocks out Regal with a right hook, but it drives Regal out to the floor. Uh, Bad follows up with a plancha. Uh, They do a series of pin reversals, and Regal gets the pin kind of out of nowhere. Decent opening match, but nothing special. I mean, is it bad to say that I really like Johnny B. Bad? Mark Miro, this that, I had a note on that. Just like how much better Mark Miro was as Johnny B. Bad than Mark Miro is remarkable. He was just better at playing this character for some reason. He had tons of charisma as Johnny B. Bad, and none as Mark Miro. Yeah, it, it's stunning to see. Like as Mark Miro, he's literally the least interesting person on planet Earth. But here's Johnny B. Bad. He's maybe it's just that having the character gives him more confidence to do all this wacky shit. But like he, the people love him. Like he's having a great time, despite the fact that it felt like he was feuding for the television title for like five years straight. 
Um, after the match, uh, Bad roughs up Dundee to get his heat back, and then Mean Gene is in the ring. He introduces Antonio Inoki, who gets a very mild reaction from the crowd. Um, just clearly, I'm sure, just Hogan doing a favor to his friend. Yeah, no no one in this crowd knows who Antonio Inoki is. Yeah, and they do build him up for a little bit, but it definitely seems like it's not going to be much of anything. If this is New York, Antonio Inoki probably gets a pop because he used to work the garden, but yeah, nobody in Orlando knows Inoki. Right. Now, that said, when Regal gets in the ring and starts complaining about how Inoki's getting an award and he doesn't, and then Inoki stands up to him, the crowd immediately starts popping hard. Yeah. Uh, Regal gets into the ring, complains about Inoki getting this award. Regal claims that he's been elected to the House of Lords in England, just like Inoki was elected to the House of Counselors in Japan. Uh, Regal challenges Inoki, but then backs down. I believe this set up a Regal versus Inoki match at the Clash of the Champions in August. This is one of those things where... Regal and Inoki, I believe, wrestled in Japan a couple of times because Inoki was always looking for foreigners who were like super tough badasses that so he, he could, could fight and humiliate. Yeah. <laughs> because that's the Inoki way. So he could shoot on them in a worked match to prove Exactly. He was tough. Because Puro Resso is the strongest. He he was Antonio Inoki was obsessed with finding people from different fighting styles and different wrestling parts of the world and then showing that he was way better than them so that his promotion was way better than them. That was his whole promotional tactic. So he and Regal had some matches, and they were like some vicious, hard-hitting, bloody affairs. And so, like, this is exciting. Like, this is the kind of thing I think people could have gotten into. But at this point, Inoki's pretty old, and you're just you're probably not getting that match the way you want it. No, he's way past. I mean, he wrestles for another couple of years after this, but he's past it here. Yes. I mean, he's. This is even a few years after Vader murdered him a couple of times. Yeah. Speaking of which, next up, we've got Vader against the Guardian Angel. Rest in peace, Vader. You know, gone way too soon. Glad uh, we get to talk about him here. Celebrate one of the matches where he actually hits that damn moonsault. Yes. One of, I, I think that I can only think of like maybe 10 times in his career he hit that damn moonsault. Oh. And I can't even believe that there were 10 because that looked like the most painful, dangerous thing you could possibly take. Just you try to imagine laying on the mat and looking up and seeing that 400 pan, pound man doing a backflip and coming down right on you. And even worse, like this is a guy who's probably been stiffing you all match. He's been beating the shit out of you left and right. And you're like, this guy doesn't care about my well-being. Um, for this match, so it's Vader against the Guardian Angel, who is the big boss man in a more uh, trademark-friendly gimmick. Uh, he had been playing the boss before this and you know, coming out dressed like a cop with his nightstick, which obviously the WWF was not happy about and you know, threatened WCW with a lawsuit. I wonder if he could have gotten away with man boss. <laughs> um, so here, I don't, I don't know what the hell was a guardian angel. Was the, this seemed to be something very specifically early nineties. I assume it was like a program for like regular people to like help out patrolling the streets. See, I think I remember vaguely something about that. It was like a neighborhood watch kind of thing where Sounds you would right. like volunteer and kind of patrol the streets and stuff. But and, like, maybe it has, like, a tie into, like, kind of, like, 
by a motorcycle gang or something like it, it's not clearly answered here and boss man never really gets an opportunity to do much promoing about it so it's just the guardian angel is a terrible name do we agree on that oh totally it I, sucks ray trailer would have been better ray trailer's a great name Let's go back to big bubba big bubba big bubba rogers just big insert whatever yeah. <laughs> um Hell of a match between these two, as you would expect. Two of the best, most athletic big men in wrestling history. This is one of those secret dream matches that you get from time to time. Yeah, that you don't really that's realize it's like, one. I mean, really kind of the two best big men of the era. <clears throat> yeah, and I mean, it's awesome. It's everything that you want it to be. These people, these guys beat the shit out of each other. Yeah, hard hitting, stiff punches. Um, Boss man slams Vader like two minutes into the match. Uh, maybe they should have built more to that, but hey, this was fun. Um, boss ke- keeps getting to beat up Harley Race, which is entertaining. Uh, Vader turns the tide. He slams Boss man. He hits the Vader bomb. Harley Race kind of waves him off. No, don't pin him. Tells him to go up again. This time he goes all the way up to the top, hits the goddamn moonsault. And it Jesus. looks incredible. Oh my god, a four hundred pound man doing a moonsault. And I just want you to remember all the times that you've ever seen much smaller men do okay looking moonsaults, or like. And here's the thing: this is a move we were talking about this earlier. This is a move that is designed not to hit people. Like it's similar to like Kurt Angle's moonsault back in the day in the story where he broke Hardcore Holly's arm. If you practice not doing it on a person enough times, it's really hard to then do it to a person. And he does it here perfectly. Like, he hits it perfectly. It's incredible. So, he doesn't get the pin here. Harley Race goes up to the top, teasing like he's going to do the diving headbutt, and Boss Man pops up and throws him off the top rope, just totally no-selling this moonsault and the Vader bomb. This was very weird. Very weird. It's made no sense at all. <clears throat> yeah, I don't know where they were trying to go with this. And then Boss Man just starts kicking, just totally kicking Vader's ass. Like, he just got absolutely destroyed with two massive finishing moves, and he's absolutely fine 30 seconds later. And see, that's the thing. It's like, we always give WWE a ton of crap for the way that they handled Vader. And much deservedly so. They buried him. But at this point, WCW is burying him too. Like, they don't have anything for him to do at this point. After a couple of years where he was, like, really popping business and was really doing great, they've just run out of people for him to face. They don't have any new baby. They've got Hulk Hogan now. That's who he's going to face. Yes, but he's not strong when he faces Hulk Hogan. That's the thing, is they should be understanding, like, we're going to get to Vader Hogan. Let's start building Vader back up. Yeah, like that's your money match is Vader Hogan, right? Like that's the monster for Hogan to slay. You have him in house. You've done the storyline before with other people. Like, and the, in theory, you have an entirely new audience that's watching now. You should have had him like murder Ricky Steamboat in four minutes or something. Yeah, um, this seems textbook. When Vader and Hogan happens in 1995, it doesn't really do a lot because vader just didn't mean much at this point yeah it's a shame because there really aren't a lot of credible monsters ever like vader uh boss man suplexes vader uh from the apron into the ring 
Then the ref gets bumped. Uh, Vader gets a baton from Race, but Boss Man cuts him off. The ref wakes up to see Boss Man holding the baton and disqualifies him. Pretty lame finish. Vader yeah. should have just gone over clean. And see, that's the thing. Like, I get trying to keep Boss Man strong because, I mean, he's somebody that you've gotten recently and you're trying to do some stuff with him. I get it. But um, there's so much money in Vader. And they know it because they're eventually going to go to that. They're not going to go to Hogan versus Boss Man. No. Yeah, you're picking one of these guys is going to work with Hogan and the right guy is Vader. And they just don't. And, like, again, when you know you're going to have a bigger audience than your usual audience, you have to be very careful with what you present those people because that's how they're going to judge you. A lot of eyes that have never been on WCW before were probably watching this show. And it's the same thing we said about the TNA show where uh, Hogan first comes back. That's the most an impact had been watched in a long, 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 long time, maybe ever. And then you put on a bunch of garbage and then people think you're garbage. If people have never seen Bader before in their entire life and this is their first impression, they're not impressed. They then recap a match that happened uh, before the pay-per-view started. Two Florida radio hosts wrestled a woman named Molly McShane. This looked absolutely terrible. Um, Shivani then asks Ventura if he would team with him against the Sassy Boys, who were the two Florida radio hosts. Ventura replies he should just team with Lois instead. Yes. It's fantastic now that we know who Lois is, but at the time people must have been like, who the fuck is Lois? It's amazing in retrospect that we got a Lois Shivani shout out on pay-per-view. But yeah, uh, for all the people watching at home in 1994, they had no idea what Jesse was talking about here. Now, let the record show also that we would eventually see Molly McShane and WCW again losing to Medusa on some worldwide tapings. Sounds about right. There were only about five women's wrestlers in the world at this point. Oh, yeah. And they're not great <laughs> not in the world but in america yeah in america whenever, whenever wcw needed actual women's wrestlers they would go to japan for it oh god yes they would uh next up we've got terry funk and bunkhouse buck against dustin rhodes and arn anderson can we spend an hour talking about the storyline please this is amazing. We have an even stupider man in wrestling history here, and it's yes. Dustin Rhodes. Just you, like you just look at the names in this match, and you're like, oh, Arn's gonna turn on Dustin. Like, <laughs> you can see that. Okay, so here's the backstory of this. Terry Funk hates Dusty Rhodes. He's always hated Dusty Rhodes his entire life in his inimitable Terry Funk way, yeah. where he'll just like hijack promo segments to be like, fuck you, Dusty Rhodes. Your mother's a whore. <laughs> and he's recruited Bunkhouse Buck, and they're a member of the Stud Stable. Which, I mean, sure. <laughs> Man, we still got some 1980s wrestling going on here. We sure do. But like, they're going against Dustin Rhodes. And Dustin Rhodes, at this point, is an awesome prospect. Honestly, I know that he's another one of those people that people are like, ugh, nepotism got him his spot. But Dustin Rhodes can go. Oh, he's phenomenal. And he looks great. And if someone could just dress him in something other than that terrible outfit he always wears, that would have been He does have awesome. that problem of not knowing how to dress. So he is trying to fight back against the stud stable, and he is obsessed with getting Arn Anderson on his side. Arn Anderson, Which, who's basically a tweener at this point. Wouldn't you always want Arn Anderson on your side? But like this gives the fans an opportunity to finally cheer for Arn, which they've never really gotten. 
And like he kind of like turns baby, he like strings him along. He's just like, I'll give you my answer at the tapings. And then on the show, he's like, you know what? Damn it. We're going to go kick their goddamn asses. And it's awesome. And there's a big, huge pop from the crowd. They're so into it because Arn Anderson is amazing. He's such a badass. Like you badly want to like him. And then they come to this match and the baby face stuff for Dustin is incredible in this match. I love it. Yeah. If you've never seen pre-gold dust, Dustin Rhodes, like check some of this out. Watching a dude who's like 6'6", 260, 270 move like that and bump like that is special. Like, and he's got fire. Like I gold dust is a character that I have conflicted thoughts about, but obviously he was very successful in his run as gold dust in various ways, but it's still important to understand that based on the kind of prospect he was at this point, his career was a huge disappointment. Absolutely. He, he should have been a top guy. No question. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. The what ifs like, you know, it was pitched that this guy would come in and wrestle Hogan at WrestleMania nine is how yeah. differently things could have gone for him. Which is bizarre because he's such like a baby face. It's hard to imagine him wrestling Hogan. Yeah, I don't I don't know how that was gonna work. And yeah, I don't think Hogan was gonna work with a guy who was taller and better looking and way more athletic. But like the one thing this company really needs is a top baby face under the age of thirty-five. And, and that's him right here. And his daddy's on the booking committee. And yet he can't get a real push to save his life. And part of that is because the political background going on around his dad at this point is extremely, extremely challenging. Like it's, and he's going to be caught up in it because obviously he's his father's son. And then they're going to have a big falling out. And then he's, I think Dustin's actually been fired from the booking committee by now, now that I'm thinking about the timeline. That probably is true. And I don't know if they've had their falling out yet, which may or may not be over Terry Runnels, depending on who you ask. Yeah. But man, it's just such a disappointment because he's incredible here. Like, literally, like he is like fighting two people at once, and the crowd is like blowing off the roof, and it's awesome. I've got a really fun. Did you know? Did you know that Bunkhouse Buck is the guy who played Jack Swagger's dad in WWE? Are you serious? Yep. I did not know that. <laughs> That is pretty damn random, isn't it? What a weird, weird... Yeah, he finally made it to New York and they had him play Jack Swagger Sr. Okay, maybe this is just like the Northern Yankee in me and you're from actually further north than me, so I'm not sure if you can answer this. <laughs> what is a bunkhouse? I've been wondering for 30 years. Isn't it like where all the cowboys would stay? Like they'd bunk up in there? I mean, I guess, but why is he bunkhouse buck? Like... There were a lot of bunk houses. It's some WCW. real southern shit. I guess, man. It's I the most uh, anything involving a bunk house is the most southern thing. And with Dusty Rhodes, anything that involved a bunk house was automatically over. I guess, yeah. Like if you are listening to this and you're from the south, please hit us up in our Twitter mentions and explain to us Yankee bastards what a bunk house is. Uh, Dustin misses a crossbody, rolls down the steps to the floor, gets his ass kicked for a while, makes a comeback, makes the hot tag, Arn comes in and DDTs his ass. Take that, you stupid piece of shit. 
I laughed out loud oh, when this so happened right. because they, the way that they work it, you don't really notice that Arn hasn't tagged into the match yet. It's just Dustin jumps in because he wants a piece of Terry Funk. And then he's literally like fighting off both of them. And Arn's on the corner, like, come on, come on, get me in, get me in. And then the second Dustin finally tags him, boom, DDT. Fuck you. Perfection. <laughs> just love that. Arn. <laughs> And the booze that rained down on Arn Anderson. And he just loves it because he's such a villain. The fact that this man never won a world title somewhere is one of the greatest injustices. It's such a shame. He's like, such a perfect character here. One of the best wrestlers to never be world champion. And like he just he just has that attachment with the fans. And he has such, such an ironclad character. It's like the ultimate badass. It's just amazing. Um, he's the star of every one of these shows from this era that we do. Mean Gene berates Arn for turning on Dustin. Arn just blows him off and says they're going to go party. Which is great. Yeah. Um, then Shivani and Heenan interview Hank Aaron. He's the vice president of Turner Broadcasting. Not sure if he'd ever attended a WCW show before this, but the stars are coming out to see Hulk Hogan. It is pretty funny that like they just keep panning to like their bosses. Like, oh, hey, here's my boss. Isn't he a fun fella? I'm a little surprised they couldn't get Turner down there, but he was probably like uh, like off scaling in the sailing in the Caribbean or something. Did they ever get Turner on television? He Never. did do an appearance for the Hogan Flair contract sign-in. Oh, that's right. That's right. He may have also been there for the Hogan Sting contract sign-in, but yeah, that's the extent of it. Because, man, that would have been so amazing if they could have gotten more of him. But I'm sure. Yeah. yeah there's, there's, I mean, like I said, there was this one time where Bischoff like, got fired because he had joined the NWO. And I think they asked for Turner to do it. And he thought about it and declined. And I think he had, just had so many people around him telling him not to do stuff. Yeah. Because, like I mean, this, in the 90s, he's thinking about running for president. Like, right. he's got big, big things on his mind. And he's, yeah, I think a little uneasy about being too associated with pro wrestling. Which makes sense. It's just a shame because he was such yeah. a larger-than-life personality. He would have yeah, been the, the pops he could have gotten as just like once a year, Ted is going to show up and make a gigantic announcement. Give him some good old cowboy music. He would have had a blast. <laughs> uh, next up. For the United States title, we've got Steve Austin defending against Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. Um, kind of a dream match between these two. This is not nearly the best match they ever had, but it's still a pretty good one. Um, is this the first match that they had? I'm trying to remember that. I No, I think they had wrestled on Beach Blast the year before this, too. They've definitely crossed paths before this, including in some tag matches. Yeah, because they wrestle like 20 times. Yeah. And they're all amazing. Yeah. <laughs> um, Enjoy Steve Austin's push while it lasts because he's completely fucked after this. Um, it's impossible to imagine how. A couple he months loses. after this, he loses to Jim Duggan in 30 seconds on a pay-per-view. Steve Austin here, like even setting aside if it's possible to do that, what you know about Steve Austin later, he looks like a star. Yeah. Stunning Steve Austin was not Stone Cold Steve Austin, but he still could have been the world champion. Hell yes, absolutely. He could have been a top heel. Absolutely he could have. Yeah. Fantastic just, worker. He has all of that viciousness, but he's such 
he's got so much more movement in the ring. Like he's not, it's different from the way that Stone Cold Steve Austin would be, but he's still got all of that same like heel bravado, except he's just arrogant on top of it. It's just an interesting way to see him. Like it's, it's Stone Cold Steve Austin's in there. It's just got this like veneer of Hollywood heel over top of it. Austin teases a knee injury early in the match, but it turns out he was playing possum. Uh, He briefly gets the advantage, but Steamboat turns the tide, keeps working the arm. Austin takes over with a big back suplex, then clotheslines Steamboat over the top to the floor. That's not a disqualification for some reason. And in fact, they just keep bringing that up over and over again. And like they're like, wait, isn't shouldn't that be a disqualification? <laughs> He's trying not. to get himself disqualified. Steamboat slips out of a back suplex, gets a pinning combo for two, then a beautiful arm drag and an arm bar. Um, Austin hits Steamboat with a massive spine buster. Austin keeps trying to get pins. Steamboat accidentally low blows him, but refuses to take advantage of it. Austin regains the advantage, straddles Steamboat against the ropes. Austin misses a charge and hits the ring post. Steamboat comes off the top with a flying chop to the head. Austin keeps trying to throw Steamboat over the top rope to get disqualified, but Steamboat keeps catching the top rope and skinning the cat back in. That is a great, great spot. Yeah. It's just like Austin knows that he's got to get out of this with his title. He's just like, well, I can just throw him over the top rope because this is stupid SWCW, and that's yeah. a rule here. Really and Steamboat's too good for that. Just like you can't powerbomb Kidman, you can't throw Steamboat out of the ring. No. Amazing this guy never won a Royal Rumble. I guess he was never in a Royal Rumble. That's yeah. why he never won. He would have just he would have had to have won. He would have just kept skinning the cat. A series of pin attempts by Steamboat only gets two. Austin goes for a tombstone. Steamboat reverses. Austin reverses. Steamboat reverses and spikes him with the tombstone. I've never seen that many reversals. That is one of the coolest spots I've ever seen in a wrestling they go all the way across the ring. And literally the crowd by the end is like losing their minds because they've never seen anything like this before. I've never seen anything like this before. Like, is this the time to mention that these two have some of the best chemistry of any two people who have ever wrestled? Well, they're pretty fantastic. And, you know, Steve, Steve Austin is kind of the new Ric Flair, and we saw how well Steamboat and Flair work together. And it just works so much of, as Austin is like a disrespectful young shit and Steamboat is like the venerable veteran. It, it just works so beautifully. And, like, they just they just mesh incredibly well. It's fantastic. This is the last really great thing Steamboat will ever do is his run with Austin. Yeah, he's done not long after this. Yeah, his back... Uh, gives out and that's the end for him until he comes back for that amazing match at WrestleMania 25, which we'll cover one day with bated breath. Uh, Steamboat comes off the top with a cross body, but Austin grabs the referee and pulls him in the way. Uh, the ref is going to disqualify Austin, but Steamboat asks him not to. Steamboat connects with a cross body. Austin rolls through, gets his feet on the ropes and gets the pin. Really enjoyed that. Top Love. quality stuff. Loved every second of it. Loved every second of every match these two ever had. How you could ever watch this match and be like, eh, we don't have to push that guy. I'll never understand. Yeah. Um, generously, Hogan just didn't see money in Austin. More cynically, he saw him as a threat. And it always cracks me up that like Steve Austin seriously pitched an angle where he was Hulk Hogan's nephew. <laughs> 
I've never heard that before. Yes, he genuinely pitched that to Bischoff, and they did not go. And they were like, "Uh, yeah, let's think about that." And then they just never got back to him. And that's when he started to get like real salty. But like, how amazing would that have been? Yes, Hulk Hogan's nephew, Stone Cold Steve Hogan. No, can't do it. (laughs) Uh, Backstage, Gene interviews Arn Funk, the rest of the stud stable. Can't understand a word they're saying. But it's actually a pretty great segment because he goes back and they're having like this gigantic party where everyone's just spraying champagne everywhere and there's just random women around. And Gene is so indignant. He's just like, I'm I'm going to get to Arn Anderson. He's going to explain his (laughs) actions. And like Arn does. And the entire time he's trying to cut a promo, Terry Funk is pouring champagne directly in his eyeballs. (laughs) This is the angriest I've seen Gene other than when the SummerSlam set fell down yes. and when someone was smoking a cigarette during Flair's promo at Rumble 92. The best part of this promo is as it's going off and there he throws it, he turns to the young women who are there ostensibly to have sex with Arn Anderson for his services. And it's just like, you two are lovely young ladies. You should know better. <laughs> oh, man. God, Gene Okerlund. I just... The gap between Gene Okerlund and whoever the second best backstage interviewer ever is so massive. It's possible that he's the best at his job that he has. He's better at there's more of a gap between him and second place at his job than in any job anywhere in the world ever. No, like I can't think of another example where number one is that far ahead. It's hard to think of anyone else who's done this who even stood out really. There's even like we love Renee Young now, but she's like an embarrassment compared to Gene. Like it's not it's not even the same category. No, and like no one is allowed to do this kind of stuff where they just let Gene do whatever he wants. He's just reacting to stuff. It's like not, Gene was to announcers what like Earl Hebner was to referees. Like he's the one guy who gets to hit back, you know? Yeah. Uh next up for the WCW tag titles, we've got Cactus Jack and Kevin Sullivan defending against Pretty Wonderful, the team of uh, Paul Roma and Paul Orndorff. Um, Final WCW pay-per-view appearance for Foley. Um, He's just kind of fed up with not getting the push that he thinks he deserves. How amazing would a match between Cactus Jack and Hulk Hogan have been? I mean, it's difficult to imagine Hulk Hogan agreeing to participate in that match. Yeah, I mean, in, in theory, it would just be an even bigger version of the Sting versus Cactus match that we got, which is incredible. Yes. Um, and it, it could be awesome. But Hogan, I, I just can't see him being comfortable with any of that. Um, Cactus and Max Payne had a phenomenal match against the Nasty Boys at Spring Stampede 1994. Just an absolute classic brawl. Train wreck of a match. If you've never seen it, you should check it out. Really, you should just watch that whole Spring Stampede show. It's one of WCW's best pay-per-views. Cactus Jack is in such a weird place in his career right here. Like, Mick is, he's going through some stuff. He's not sure if he even wants to be a wrestler anymore. He has no prospects of ever getting any sort of serious push. Like, he's pretty much done with this company yeah. Like he's trying to do all this creative stuff and nobody gets it. Nobody understands what he's trying to accomplish. Nobody buys into his style. Ric Flair is actively discouraging him from doing anything. <laughs> like, he's going time. to turn down 
on like a solid six figure contract from WCW to go work indies and like ECW and some Japan death matches instead. It's a big um, risk for him. It is works out. Okay. In the end, but yeah, this easily could have been the end of the road for him. Cause it's hard to imagine that WWF would have ever wanted him. And they eventually do. There's some took incredible- a lot of selling to Vince McMahon to get that. And like he basically burned his bridge back to WCW. So he was basically going to the Indies with no prospect of ever making it back to the mainstream ever. Like that's, yeah, I see. That'd be a tough sell to my wife if I'm like, hey, I know I have a good paying job now, but how about I go run a hot dog stand and maybe (laughs) I'll make it back one day. Yeah. Um, So he got a ton of heat with the office. Um, He did a match at ECW Hostile City Showdown in June, wrestled Sabu in really a hardcore dream match, you know, the two most extreme wrestlers in the world. Uh, he loses to Sabu in that match. And then in his post-match promo, he spits on his tag title belt saying, you know, it means nothing because he lost that match to Sabu. And he would Old explain, move, Mac. Yeah, he would try to explain later that, and nobody understood what the fuck he was talking about, that he was trying to say that his title as most hardcore person was more important than any belt he could have. But all WCW saw was, dude, you spit on our title. What the fuck? Yeah. So he got hurt pretty badly in that match against Sabu, and you can tell here because he is definitely not himself. Let's just go ahead and give a spoiler right off the top. This match is the shits. It really is. And like Cactus and Sullivan... I, I mean, that match with Cactus and Max Payne against the Nasties was amazing. <clears throat> Kevin Sullivan's better than Max Payne. So you're hoping for some great brawling here, and you do not get it. This match features 95% Kevin Sullivan, which I'm convinced is the recipe to any kind of bad match you could want. <laughs> the only thing Kevin Sullivan was good for was really over-the-top squash matches where he would give the job or nothing at all. Yes, which is hilarious. <laughs> Little man syndrome. And, like, he did a good pile driver, but, like, other than that, this is just a lot of crap. This this match is mostly contested between Paul Roma and Kevin Sullivan, and there's no one on the face of this fucking earth that wants to see that match. WCW should not have let Kevin Sullivan continue to wrestle while he was booking. It's such a conflict of interest. It doesn't even make sense. Like He was not really a valuable member of the roster, and he ends up being in the main event for, like, the next year they should not okay for two years after that three years after this he's involved in a top spot on the company that he really does not deserve we a lot of this period of hogan on top is forgotten and for good reason because it sucks but we don't give nearly enough scorn to the dungeon of doom which is one of the stupidest worst things in wrestling history and lasts like a year and a half and they get to feud with Hogan and the Four Horsemen, and Sullivan's feud with Benoit goes on forever and ever. I can't wait to talk about that because that's one of the weirdest deals ever in wrestling. Absolutely, yes. But just on the subject, if everybody has their pick for what the worst match of all time is, and I mean, I've seen some really terrible matches, trust me. I The bread-eating death match comes to mind, but... My vote for the worst match ever put on a pay-per-view in history is Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage versus everyone on Earth. (laughs) And the triple-decker 
Doomsday Apocalypse Cage match of Doom. That's the worst thing I've ever seen. Yeah. Truly an embarrassment (laughs) that that match happened. Holy shit. Cactus tags in. He hits the double arm DDT. Roma pulls him off and Orndorff (coughs) covers while Roma holds down his feet for the pin. Goodbye, Cactus. Say, way to go on the way out. I'm amazed that Paul Roma is still here. Because didn't his failed horseman run happen like three years before this? Um, when did that happen? 93. Oh, okay. So. Yeah, when Flair came back. What an embarrassment that was. Yeah. And all right, we've made it to the main event. Hey! WSW World Heavyweight Championship, Paul Kogan versus Ric Flair, the defending champion. Uh, Michael Buffer is here to do the introductions. He introduces... WCW Commissioner Nick Bockwinkle, Shaquille O'Neal, and Ben Flair comes out first. Uh, he's got Sherry backing him up. He is looking real stylish in purple trunks and boots. And he's in amazing shape, too. Yes. Like He looks like a million bucks here. Yeah. Um, Shivani bills this as you know the biggest match of his career. He's probably not wrong. Yeah, I mean, I think it certainly is true. Hogan comes out second. I, I'd say mostly cheers, but some noticeable boos. My favorite thing about this is Hogan comes out with like 20 people. Yeah. So it's like Jimmy Hart and Mr. T and there's like some security people wandering around and the camera doesn't even catch him when he comes out of the entrance. It's too busy looking at Mr. T. Yeah. They have not perfected the swoop shot that the WWF would use. Yeah. And it's, it's just such a difference to like compare it to like WWE. That it's makes kind of like, Oh, he's here. Look, yeah. Uh, Hulk Hogan is. Like the most important thing in the world. Here he is. Your icon Hulk Hogan. And instead it's just like, Hey, here's this dude. Cool. Uh, Buffer does his introductions boxing style. Once both men have gotten into the ring, which is unusual for him. Um, Buffer, did this, when did they start using him? I think that was like right when Bischoff came in. He made the deal with Buffer. So I think that was the year before this. I didn't know if he had had time to like perfect his rap like he would have. Because later on, he'll be like amazing at this. Yeah. Um, so he mentions that we are approaching the 21st, 25th anniversary of the moon landing. Points out we're only miles from where Apollo 11 took off, and then he introduces the competitors. He says Hogan is returning from a three-year layoff. It's actually only been a year since he's been in the ring. He was wrestling Yokozuna the year before this. Oof. I don't know why they're claiming he's been gone three years. This was a running thing, too. Like This, is, this was like the company line, is Hogan has not wrestled for three years. And I mean, I don't... It's not like it was low profile, the matches that he had had recently. And I don't know how saying that he's somehow been off. Maybe they're trying to make people forget the steroids thing. I don't know. Because he certainly doesn't look like 80s Hulk Hogan here. No, uh, he is probably down over 50 pounds from his peak, maybe more. Though, let's be clear. Hulk Hogan looks like Andre the Giant in the WCW ring. Because it's a much smaller ring. Ric Flair is probably six or seven inches shorter than him. Yeah. Um, crowd is on fire. Oh, yeah. Crowd is absolutely cooking from the bell. Um, dream match, and they're here to see it. 
Uh, big shoulder block from Hogan, levels Flair. They lock up. Hogan overpowers him. Hogan ducks a Flair lockup attempt and then mocks Flair's strut. Love it. Oh, it was so good. Uh, Hogan rolls Flair into an armbar, which is not something I'd really seen him do before, other than maybe in Japan. See, that's the thing is that he's, he's Japan Hulk Hogan here. Say this is not long after he had been wrestling those matches like Muda in Japan, and like he had his armbar game going fly. Um, Hogan chases Flair to the floor. <coughs> Flair uses Sherry as a shield. Uh, back in the ring, Hogan continues to dominate, and Flair begs off. He fails to avoid Hogan's big boot. Uh, when Hogan gets back in the ring, Flair catches him off guard with a boot and then takes over. Flair misses a knee drop. Hogan bites Flair in the corner, then does a 10-punch. Uh, Sherry trips Hogan, which allows Flair to take control. Flair with some chops, but Hogan fires up and chops him down. Flair locks in a sleeper hold. Hogan's arm drops twice, but then he hulks up. Shoulder blocks from Hogan, right hands. Flair goes to the corner. He does the flare flip and then gets clotheslined off the apron. Hogan follows up with a suplex on the floor. Then Hogan hits the big boot back in the ring, but misses the leg drop. Man. Yeah, the pace of it for a Hogan match, the pace here is incredible. It's incredible. Um, I mean, this is where I think slimmed down Hogan has its advantages that he just has more lungs than he did when he was pushing 300 pounds. I mean, this is, this is fantastic. And like, this is a whole other kind of Hulk Hogan that we could have had is like Hulk Hogan was no stranger to actually working good matches. Those aren't the matches that most people have ever seen because he just didn't need to do that. No. And his matches that drew money were against big guys. You know, he drew money against Andre and one man gang and guys he couldn't have this kind of match with. But like, and maybe it's just me projecting, but I would even say that the things that he loved to do, like he loved to do these wrestling matches when he actually got the opportunity to do it. And that's why, like, whenever it really counted, Hulk Hogan would turn in, like, an incredible performance. He's always been good for that. Like, on the biggest stage, Hulk Hogan delivers. Um, Hogan rolls up Flair and nearly gets three. Flair kicks out, goes to work on Hogan's leg. Hogan pops up, hits the big boot. Sherry pulls the ref out of the ring at two. Uh, Ref is down. He hit his head on the way down. Hogan is distracted by Sherry. That allows Flair to clip his knee. Sherry goes up to the top rope and hits a goddamn superfly splash onto Hogan. Unreal. Such a great moment. Sherry is killing it. Oh, my God. Um, Flair continues to work on Hogan's leg as a new referee comes in. Sherry goes for another splash. Hogan rolls out of the way. Flair goes the top rope, gets thrown off. Hogan clotheslines both Flair and Sherry and then locks Flair in the figure four. Flair manages to slip out. Sherry gets up on the apron. Hogan pushes her off into Mr. T's arms and Mr. T carries her away. Flair levels Hogan with the brass knucks, but Hogan hulks up. Big boot, leg drop, one, two, three. Hulk Hogan, the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. My favorite part about this is that when the brass knucks come out, they go flying out of the ring, and you see Flair be like, oh, shit, and he just sprints outside of the ring <laughs> to grab him. 
Yeah. Even the nature boy loses his handle once in a while. Yeah. Um, I thought that was one of the best Hogan matches ever. Like it's that's up there with the warrior match, the savage match from WrestleMania five. Great stuff. It's as good as it gets. Yes. This is incredible. Hogan really seems like he's all in on this. Flair busts his ass to make Hogan look like a badass. Like yeah. he, this is a sell job. Like 100%. Ric Flair is selling Hulk Hogan as a concept to us. Yeah. And he puts and him over clean as a whistle. These are two guys in their 40s. That's incredible. Yeah. I, I mean, they're, the matches I've seen of them in the WWF, I really enjoyed. This was better, though. Yeah, this is great. Like, this is, if they had known they could have gotten this match out of them, I guarantee you Vince would have done this match. They get a huge pop for Hogan's win. Fireworks explode. Hogan celebrates with Mr. T and Shaq. This, I mean, they nailed this moment. This absolutely feels huge. Absolutely. And it, it's funny because they follow him like all the way back to the dressing room, which I've never really seen them do before or anybody yeah. do before. This was fascinating. Yeah, the, the match ends and there's still five, ten minutes left in the show. And I'm kind of, I'm like, did they do it? I'm, like, I'm trying to remember, like, is there some post-match angle here? But yeah, yeah it's kind of like Hogan leaves goes backstage go back to the announcers for a little bit they talk about the match then we go backstage and hogan's just kind of like walking around like goes to his locker room takes his boots off like walks barefoot through the hallway um into the interview room uh we see like bischoff jim duggan beefcake walking around backstage um Mean Gene interviews Hogan, and he just kind of rambles on and on and talks about nothing. Yeah. And, I mean, it's not a great promo or anything like that. But it just kind of gives you the feeling of, like, like uh, the locker room at a football game after a big win. You know what I mean? It, it's it's a really cool and different kind of atmosphere. I love that kind of thing. It just goes along with that press conference thing I was talking about earlier. It makes the moment feel more real. Yeah. It's it, just, just like you're seeing Hogan – as a person enjoying his victory. It's not just a match in the ring and front on TV. It like you get to see, you get to like share it with him. Yeah, doesn't it just feel authentic? Yeah, it it's feels so, great. The promo is kind of the real Hogan rather than Hogan the character. I'd say I, I had started to transcribe it because I was gonna do it, and I was like, you know what? That doesn't even seem fair. He's yeah. just doing his best. Um then we go back to Shivani and Heenan to wrap up the show. I don't know how to sum this up. What a weird show. Mostly good, but just they've got a little bit of everything here. They've got stuff that's straight out of the 80s. They've got stuff from you know, Jim Crockett Promotions. They've got stuff from NWA era, the Bill Watts era of WCW. I just Each match feels like it exists in its own world. Well, let me ask you the most important question, and the one that really is the most important thing. Not just, obviously, the business that they do here is very cool and special and will lead to better things, but that's not the most important thing. You're a new fan who just watched this because you heard Hogan was going to wrestle Flair, and that's cool. Are you watching next week? Um, I don't feel like this pay-per-view left you with anywhere to go is the thing. Right. What's the next step here after this? I mean, obviously just rematches. Yeah, but... they do Hogan Flair at the Clash of the Champions in August, and I think Flair wins on a count-out or something. So then they do Hogan Flair in a cage at Halloween Havoc with Flair's career on the line, and Hogan beats him. Flair you know, is retired for like 
eight months. He just needed some time off to like have surgery. Um, Let me do one more TNA parallel, uh, <laughs> just because that's what we're doing here today. If you have the person who comes in, who everybody thinks is going to win, win. You have nowhere to go. This is very similar to when Kurt Angle comes into TNA, and the dream match is Kurt Angle Samoa Joe. Yeah, everyone knows it. Everyone's interested. It's hot. Yeah. Kurt Angle wins the right first away. match. There's nowhere to go. Yeah, that's the expected result. Samoa Joe is lesser than Kurt Angle, as you always suspected that he was. End of feud. It doesn't matter that Samoa Joe wins the second match because there doesn't need to be one. You don't need to follow it there. Your suspicions have been confirmed. You have seen the babyface win. It's the same thing here. If Flair wins here, you have somewhere to go. Like if Sherry screws Hogan and oh, his man. debut, like you've got heat. You've got direction. You've got some more stuff to do. Or even what if Vader attacks Hogan backstage? Yes. The match? Like, what I, if we get Hogan and Sting versus Vader and Flair? I think you got to do something here to set up the what's next because you've got a lot of eyeballs on this pay-per-view and you're probably going to do a strong rating on the Saturday night after this. But, you know, you're just stuck with a Hogan-Flair rematch after Hogan has already come in and beaten Flair. Yeah. It's just not it's just not the intrigue behind it. Who cares? There's just nothing there's nothing left. And I feel that way about pretty much every feud here, except for Arn Anderson and Dustin Rhodes, which very clearly has somewhere to go. Yeah. That'll lead to a war games match at Fall Brawl, where I think they they bring back Dusty to team with Dustin, and I can't remember who their partners are. That sounds pretty fun. Yeah. But yeah, I mean what an interesting and weird pay-per-view here. Oh, God. It's so weird, but I loved it. Honestly, I, I very much enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, interesting show kind of from top to bottom. Um, I mean, like we said, this is the last highlight for a while for the Hogan era. His subsequent pay-per-views in WCW do not do great business. They kind of go back more to where they had been before him. Yep. Um he does end up re-signing a multi-year deal with WCW at the end of the year. Like we said, he beats Flair in a cage match at Halloween Havoc. And then they move on to his epic feud with Brutus Beefcake for Starcade. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's the match, the main event for WCW's equivalent of WrestleMania. Hogan against Beefcake. Yeah, it sure is. Um, so yeah, I mean, so we're going to skip forward two years next week and go to bash at the beach 96 and we'll see the conclusion of this lame Hogan red and yellow WCW run and how they changed everything and turned it all around in one night. And that's incredible. Yeah. I uh, can't wait to talk next week about bash at the beach 96, the formation of the new world order. Hulk Hogan's heel turn and lots of other very weird and fun things on that show. Because even if they're into the Monday night wars era, parts of the company at that point still feel very much like 93, 94 WCW. I mean, you're being nice about this. There's some <laughs> straight up fucking trash on this show. Oh, uh, you mean you're not fired up for the double, double dog collar match between uh, the nasty boys and the public enemy? I'm just looking forward to the Carson City Silver Dollar match. Who doesn't love a good Carson City Silver Dollar match? 
<laughs> We've got the ridiculous pull from that bat match. It's Spring Stampede 98 back. Oh, God, yeah, we mentioned that, except now two giant fat guys are going to try <laughs> yeah. to climb Can you pole. wait to see Earthquake and Big Boss Man try to climb that pole and find out who actually climbs the pole? For a sock full of quarters? <laughs> yep. All that and more next week with Bash at the Beach 96. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.